The following broadcast is brought to you by Public House Media. The latest headlines. If they go out and wipe the floor with the Texans, I might buy in. The insightful interviews. Whitney McIntosh, SB Nation. I was more impressed with John Carlos, especially when you consider Aaron Judge's all-star squad. The hottest takes. Yeah, Saquon Barkley had a great game against Iowa, but he hasn't done much. Can all be found on Press, Press Row. Row. Here's your host. It's clearly time for a change. It's only a matter of time before it happens. Christian Heimel. What is up? Welcome. Grab a seat, grab a couch, bed, whatever it is that you feel like. Just have a seat right there on the floor. Welcome on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. So happy to be here with you again, broadcasting as part of the Public House Media Network. Don't forget you can find us on a multitude of platforms, Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com. You can visit the Public House Media website, thephmedia.com. You can also Find us on Google Play, iTunes, and iHeartRadio, and we hope that you guys can subscribe, rate, share us with your friends, enjoy all that we have to offer here on this program. Uh, it's going to be a fun one this week. We have a couple of big interviews that I'm excited about. Sam Mellinger uh, is a columnist for the Kansas City Star. He will join us to talk about what really has become one of the stories of the NFL and the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, the lone undefeated team, 5-0. and uh, and I'm uh, I'm not ashamed to say I'm officially on the Chiefs bandwagon. I have hopped on. Uh, I'm ready to go and, and excited to see what happens here with this Kansas City team. I was very wary. Uh, Alex Smith has has never really proven in his career to be that guy who can lead a team into the promised land. Andy Reid, as a coach, has only done it once um, with the Philadelphia Eagles, and it was a really kind of disappointing Super Bowl appearance that the Eagles had a few years back. Uh, but the, the Chiefs have really started to show some impressive, um, I want to say resilience, I guess, considering that even though they are 5-0, and even though they have probably the best offense in the league right now with Alex Smith, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, uh, and Kareem Hunt, they've also ha- got some serious holes. They, they have a really uh, injured offensive line. They've had some injuries on the defensive end. They now lose Chris Conley for the year with an Achilles injury, which was one of the nastier ones that uh, you watched uh, on Sunday night. But Coming after a 42-34 win uh, on the road, which really, you know, the Texans had a, a had a touchdown and a two-point conversion uh, in the fourth quarter late in that game to make it a one-possession game. The Chiefs really kind of dominated throughout. So uh, really impressed with the Chiefs right now. We're excited to talk to Sam Mellinger uh, about that in just uh, a couple of minutes. And then we'll also talk with Baxter Colburn, uh, former host of the soccer podcast, Two Up Front, as well as soccer play-by-play man in the Midwest. Uh, a disappointing effort. Uh, embarrassing effort, to say the least, on Tuesday night as the U.S. men's national team falls to Trinidad and Tobago 2-1. to one. An own goal in the 17th minute didn't help, but that loss, coupled with a couple of other results in CONCACAF, means that for the first time since 1986, the U.S. men's national soccer team is not going to play in the World Cup. So, disappointment there. We'll talk with Baxter about what it means for the future of U.S. soccer and just how disappointing was Tuesday night's loss. We'll also touch on, of course, uh, Major League Baseball's postseason as the NLCS and ALCS set to get underway this weekend. So, we're excited to talk about all of that coming up as well. But want to start in the NFL because if you're a football fan, uh, you had, whether it was a good week or a bad week, we found out one thing uh, more than anything else, and that is that injuries can happen uh, at any given moment and abound. So many different injuries throughout this weekend. I mentioned Chris Conley for the Chiefs, the wide receiver with an Achilles injury. Uh, also in that game, the Texans lost two of their top defensive players in the game, J.J. Watt with a leg fracture. He's out for the year. Um, you look at Whitney Merciless, one of their best secondary players with a torn pectoral muscle. Who knows just how long uh, he's going to be out as well. I assume he's out for the season as well. Um, I mean, even go all the way back to opening game of the year. Allen Robinson tears his ACL uh, for the Jaguars. So he's out for the year. And then you saw... Uh, again, multiple injuries throughout, concussions. Uh, Travis Kelsey probably going to be out this week for the Chiefs with a concussion. But then maybe no team bit with the injury bug more 
than the New York Giants. Uh, you looked at them this weekend. They were facing the LA Chargers in a matchup of 0-4 teams um, at home, a game in which the Giants should have won. They played incredibly poorly uh, in that game uh, against the Chargers, falling 27-22 in that one. Really just didn't look like there was much going on. And then, of course, uh, Giants had a lot of you know a lot of momentum there and opportunity. But then, all of a sudden, in the second half, so many different injuries to their wide receiving core. Uh, you look at it, and three of them now out for the year: Brandon Marshall and Dwayne Harris, both having surgery on Tuesday. Um, Marshall on his ankle, Dwayne Harris on his foot. Odell Beckham Jr. with a very nasty uh, fractured ankle. If you saw that, uh, the same ankle which he sprained in the preseason and kept him um, on the injury report really for the entire year. He's out for the season. So three of the Giants' top wide receiving prospects uh, out for the year. No one's sure just yet of Sterling Shepard and his opportunity maybe to potentially get back for the year. But the Giants at 0-5 now have Denver on a, a Sunday night game. That is going to be uh, brutal for them. Um, a really big struggle for the Giants to just figure everything out from an injury standpoint. And now who do they go get? Can they sign anybody? I mean, there are so many um, available wide receivers, but who is it that is going to be there to help these Giants? And, and is it even worth it at this point? I mean, listen, first things first to, to note here. The Giants, this, these injuries cannot be used by Jerry Reese or Ben McAdoo as an excuse for the poor play. The Giants were a terrible team before these injuries happened. So I've been on the fire Jerry Reese bandwagon for a little over two years now, and I thought he should have been out with Tom Coughlin. I still think he needs to go. Ben McAdoo, I don't know why, but every time uh, I, I watch the Giants play on TV, I look at Ben McAdoo, and I think this guy is too calm uh, and almost oblivious to the dumpster fire that is his team right now. And the injuries don't help at all. So whether you bring in a Victor Cruz, a uh, Tavares King, whether you bring in Chad Ochocinco or Terrell Owens, who have both uh, said on Twitter that they are available, whoever you bring in isn't really going to help this team. They, they might make them more entertaining, but at 2-14 and 14 or you know 3-13, and six, uh, three and 13, whatever the Giants record ends up being, it's not going to matter, and it shouldn't be used as an excuse to save the jobs of Jerry Reese or maybe even Ben McAdoo. I'm not saying McAdoo should be fired. Um, I just his play calling has been porous, but with, with going 11 and five and with the defense you had last year, it masked the offensive inefficiencies, and a lot of that, of course, came from the offensive line and the lack of a running game. Two things that are directly attributed to the head coach who calls all the plays, by the way, and was the offensive coordinator as well as the general manager who helps design and put together this team. So the injuries aside, the Giants have been terrible all year. They're going to continue to be terrible all year. And there's no way this should be used as an excuse for Jerry Reese or for Ben McAdoo. Um, I don't understand why uh, people are saying uh, that they need to go find Eli Manning's replacement. I don't think it's the quarterback play. I think it's the fact that you've got a terrible offensive line. You have zero running game. And you have, have now have no wide receiving core. Uh, the issues before that, again, with Eli Manning, came from the fact that he had no uh, no offensive line to really stand behind and make something happen. So we'll see what happens as the year goes on. But I definitely think that at 0-5, with the Broncos coming up, the Giants are going to go to 0-6. Uh, Jerry Reese's time in New York is done. Uh, ben McAdoo is probably very close behind him as well. I don't think the Giants need to go and find Eli Manning's replacement just yet. Uh, I don't think it's time for Geno Smith to start playing for the Giants as a starting quarterback. There are a lot of things they can do in the next couple of years with Eli Manning to still make this team very, very competitive. You can wait a couple of years and go get a a quarterback to groom. Uh, You don't need to waste a first-round pick because the Giants are going to have a top-ten pick. They're one of three unbeat or winless teams, excuse me, the Browns, the Niners, and the Giants. Giants are going to have a top-ten pick, so you can go and get an offensive lineman or running back uh, in the first round. If you want to go get a a quarterback in the second round and groom him for a couple of years, by all means, go ahead. But uh, it's a rough time to be a Giants fan. It's a rough time to be a Niners fan who have now lost back-to-back overtime games. Um, It is a rough time to be uh, a Browns fan. It almost always is. I I don't like the benching of Deshaun Kaiser. I don't think that that was necessary for them. Um, 
you got to let the kid learn. It's a rough time to be a, a Texans fan because now you lose J.J. Watt and, and Whitney Merciless and uh, a team that had a chance, a really lot of promise, especially with the way Deshaun Watson has played. We'll see what happens, but uh, really rough time for some teams uh, and then some good times for some others. I mean, you look at the Packers and, and Aaron Rodgers just continues to do it against the Cowboys. Another incredible uh, last minute drive. A minute 13 to go with one timeout, and he engineers a tremendous drive for the Packers. A great throw and a hell of a catch from Devontae Adams, who was in the hospital 10, day, you know, 10 days prior after that hit by uh, Danny Trevathan on Thursday Night Football. So that's, I mean, impressive uh, to see what the Packers did now, 4-1. and one. And and for Cowboys fans who were saying Ezekiel Elliott, when they had a chance and, and he goes in and scores, should have taken a knee at the one, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. But you never take points off the board. I don't care if you're at home. I don't care if it burns another the final timeout for the Packers. Um, you, you take the points whenever you can get them. Don't blame Dak Prescott on that one for not taking a knee. Blame your defensive coordinator for playing a soft cover two. Blame your secondary for not knowing how to play defense. Blame your linebackers for not containing Aaron Rodgers when you've seen him do this against you multiple times uh, and not tackling him in bounds and forcing the clock to run. Uh, There were so many other things to blame in the last minute 13, not blaming Dak Prescott. I I would never tell a kid to not go and score. Never tell a player to don't, don't score. I don't understand that at all. If the Packers had zero timeouts, maybe that'd be different, but... Uh, I don't, it makes no sense to me. You get four chances from the one yard line. You could still fumble. What if you don't get in at all? Uh, You take the points whenever you can. So um, I I don't understand the argument that I saw on Twitter. A lot of people going after Ed Werder, the former ESPN Dallas Cowboys reporter um, saying that they should have taken a knee. I don't get that at all. It's, it's ridiculous and ludicrous to think that. Um, But We'll see uh, again with there. I don't understand why people are upset about that. One other note on the NFL, and then we're going to talk to Sam Mellinger, the Kansas City star, about the Chiefs and their impressive 5-0 and start and uh, whether or not uh, even the biggest skeptics should probably uh, step aside and uh, join the Chiefs bandwagon. But uh, one quick note on uh, the Chicago Bears on Monday night and Mitchell Trubisky. I thought he played well. He had a lot of accurate passes. Um, but let's pump the brakes here. The kid was 12 for 25 passing less than 50% uh, completion percentage only threw for 128 yards. His one touchdown should have been a pick or an incompletion. It was tipped off and, and luckily fell to Zach Miller. Um, and the interception that he threw at the end was, you know, a, a poor, uh, a rookie mistake, of course, but very poor thing. Uh, to do in that situation on the very first play when they had that opportunity to maybe come down and uh, and tie it or win it against uh, Minnesota on Monday night. There's some promise there, yes, but let's look at this thing effectively. The kid threw his 12 for 25 passing, only threw for 128 yards, uh, and, and a poor decision at the, on a potential game-winning drive. Uh, yes, he's a rookie. I know there's promise, but let's pump the brakes there on the Mitchell Trubisky train in Chicago. We'll see exactly just how good he becomes. Uh, you're on Press Row. I'm Christian Imel. Happy to have you guys here with us as part of the Public House Media Network. Don't forget to find us on Google Play, iTunes, iHeartRadio. Like us, share us, review us. You can find us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at Press Row PHM, or you can find us on Facebook at Press Row Podcast Public House Media. One of the big stories out of the NFL, at least so far, is uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, 5-0 and after a big win uh, on the road against the Houston Texans. They now come home to the Steelers at 6, uh, potential trying to go to 6-0 and with the Steelers at home this weekend. Sam Mellinger is a columnist for the Kansas City Star, and he joins us now here on the phone. Sam, how are things in Kansas City? <laughs> uh, Kansas City is a weird place when there's success with the sports team, uh, because... I mean, unless you're old enough to remember 1970, uh, every single time that the Chiefs have been good, it's just been a lead-up to them breaking your heart. You know what I mean? So it's, I think it's hard for some people to sort of jump all in. But um, this team is really, really good. This is the best team that the Chiefs have had, at least since 1997, and I think since, uh, you know, probably before that, too. 
Well, you even wrote about it, Sam, uh, in a column you titled "The Chiefs are the best, the undefeated Chiefs are the best team in football," and it's not even close. But, but maybe it's it's Andy Reid, maybe it's Alex Smith, something about the the history of the franchise. Where I mean, it took me until Week Five to buy into to the Chiefs. There's something with that franchise that makes people a little wary. No, hundred percent. Yeah, and, and it's totally understandable. Like, I mean, that's uh, you know, that's the Chiefs' fault. That's not fans' fault. You know, um, and when you carry that history, you know, that matters. And I think there's also you know, a certain element of uh, being the best team in the NFL on October 10th is just not that important, you know. And, and I think that that also kind of leads into this, you know, I was just going to be another another letdown. I mean, you know, I think it was four years ago in 2013 they started off 9-0. and Now that team was full of holes. And I think that even people, uh, the most, you know, red-colored glasses that people would be looking through, they would say, you know, beat a lot of bad teams. And not just that, but a lot of bad teams starting bad quarterbacks because they were coming off the 2012, so they were playing a last-place schedule. Uh, you know, this, I think, you know, who knows how the season goes, right? But four of the five teams that they played, I think, could be in the playoffs. You know, these are good teams that the Chiefs are beating. And they're, you know, they're far, far from a flawless team, right? Like, no team is, but uh, they need to get a lot better against the run. Uh, you know, they got some deficiencies offensively. The interior of the line is, is really beat up, but... You know, in some ways, gosh, you know, in a league that every rule they have basically is in place to make sure that there's a lot of parity. All teams have holes, and I think it's pretty impressive how the Chiefs have kind of schemed around those holes. What's been more impressive to you uh, about this 5-0 and start? The fact that maybe they've masked some of these deficiencies, or the fact that, as, as you pointed out in, in your column on Monday night, early Monday morning, uh, that they've lost so many guys to injuries. Eric Berry in the season opener, Mitch Morse, uh, Chris Conley this weekend. So many guys going down to season-ending injuries so early on for the Chiefs. Yeah, I mean, I think those things go hand in hand, really, and and that's that's what separates this team. That that that's why I am fully in on. And look, like you can make a joke that this is a low standard, right? But that's why I'm fully in on this is the best Chiefs team in 20 years because when the Chiefs have had good teams in the past, they've sort of been one dimensional is not exactly the right word to describe it, but they they've been the sort of team that kind of does one or two things well, and if you can push them off of that, they don't have a way to cope. And this team is not like that at all, you know. And, and I think, you know, that's maybe most plainly seen on offense uh, when they have one of, <laughs> uh, I know he's a third-round pick and all, but if you just watch the games, one of the best backs in the NFL in Kareem Hunt, uh, certainly one of the best two tight ends uh, in football in Travis Kelsey, uh, who's probably going to be out this week after concussion. And then Tyreek Hill, who I think is the fastest man in the NFL. And so, you know, it, it, you can take away one of those guys. You might even be able to take away two, but you can't take away all three. And so they just have a lot of different ways to win. And if one thing's not working, they can go to another thing. If, you know, they, I get the, the interior, I, I can't stress this enough how beat up their offensive. They have one healthy starter right now. And, you know, guys are playing out of position. Eric Fisher's playing with a bad back. Um, you know, and, and they keep getting it done. And they're doing that with misdirection. They're doing that with a lot of, like, really, really great play calling uh, with Andy Reid. And I think Matt Nagy's going to get uh, start getting a lot more credit than he's gotten so far, too. I mean, there's just – they've got a lot of ways to beat you, man. They've got – you know, they present more problems than a defense has solutions. He's Sam Mellinger, sports columnist for the Kansas City Star, joining us here on Press Row. And I want to talk about Alex Smith because he's probably maybe the main reason why, at least for me, uh, it took so long to hop on the Kansas City bandwagon. But you look at him through five games this year, uh, and he's got a career high in completion percentage, a career high in passing yards uh, per attempt, a career high in quarterback rating. He's already halfway to his career high in touchdowns with with 11, zero picks uh, so far this year. What about Alex this year has, has maybe changed that's been different from the last couple of seasons? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing to me is that there's just a lot more talent around him, you know, and uh, that to me is the biggest thing. Cause, and I'll get to this in a little bit. There, there are some, like, subtleties in the way that he's playing that are different than in the years past, but I think that those subtleties exist because there's a lot more talent around him. And, and what I mean by that is um, Tyreek Hill is, is by far the best downfield threat that he's had in Kansas City, like by far. And, and the second best downfield threat is either a tight end or it's like Donnie Avery. You know what I mean? They, they just, they had, he had fat Dwayne Bow. Like he didn't have Dwayne Bow when Dwayne Bow was good. He got Dwayne Bow after Dwayne Bow got paid and didn't really care about football as much anymore. Like he, he just hasn't had a lot of talent around him. And I think that um, 
you know, now that he's got, again, these three really dynamic playmakers, it just opens up a lot more options. Now, I'm not saying that Alex Smith is the best quarterback in football by any stretch, uh, but the, the other part, too, I think he's being a little bit more aggressive and with, with some more comfort both in the system and the guys around him, he's being a little bit more aggressive. That, that to me, has always been the biggest, uh, you know, the fairest criticism of Alex is, you know, sort of the captain checkdown thing, but, you know, more just like if he's not 90% sure that he can complete that pass, he's not going to throw it. If he's not 99% sure that that's not going to be an interception, he won't throw it. And he's starting to do that a little bit more. He's throwing guys open, which I think is the biggest difference between really, really good quarterbacks and just guys that you can get by with. You know, because I don't see him making a lot of throws that are risky. Even now, I can only think of one pass that he's thrown. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but I can only think of one pass that he's thrown that the defender's really gotten a chance to, to intercept it on. That was week one against New England. So he's being a little bit more aggressive. And the other thing, too, um, when he gets out of the pocket, so two years ago, he, I thought he was pretty good. I thought he was a lot better than people got, gave him credit for. Last year, I thought he was really bad um, and not as good as most people give him credit for. And the biggest difference in those two years was he wasn't running. And I think he got spooked a little bit. His helmet bounced off the turf twice in Indianapolis. It was really scary. His ear was bleeding. Uh, and I think he just kind of stopped trying to run. And that was a really big deterrent for him being an effective quarterback. And now, not only is he running a little bit, but once he gets out of the pocket, he's keeping his eyes downfield and he's throwing it. And that has also been, even when he was effective running, when he broke the pocket, you knew that he was going to run. You know what I mean? So the D-backs could commit and come off their guy and try to make a tackle. And now he's keeping his eyes downfield. And you saw it on a couple third longs um, the other night against Houston. He's making plays with his arm outside the pocket, and that's not something that he's done a lot of in the past. It's been impressive to watch Alex this year. Uh, His prior 11 seasons, he had just seven total uh, 300-yard passing games. And through five games this year, he's got two. The first time in his career, he's had multiple 300-yard passing games in a single season. But uh, And we're talking with Sam Mellinger, the Kansas City star here. You mentioned he, he has weapons now, and whether it be Tyreek Hill, whether it be Travis Kelsey, both of whom are tremendous, uh, a lot of the focus has been a paid attention to the rookie, uh, Kareem Hunt, who, who five weeks in uh, is, at least for me, the runaway candidate for the rookie of the year right now. What has impressed you most about this young man? The first man never tackles him ever. I, I, like I, I don't remember. Like, it, it's incredible. He's Andy Reid keeps calling him a big guy, and I don't think he's that big. I, you know, he's like 210 pounds. He's not small, but he's just he runs a lot bigger than he is. And he also the reason he was available in the third round. There's two reasons, I guess. One is uh, you know every the the people who make their living analyzing draft classes called that you know the best running back draft class in like 10 years. So so there were other good players. But all a four six six at the Combine, and there's two parts of that. One, he's faster than that. The Chiefs had him at, I think, 4.58, uh, you know, in, the, in their workout. So he's a little faster than that. But also, he's just one of the guys that, like, he just runs. Like, if, if he ran a 4.58, uh, you know, in, in shorts and track shoes and all that, he would run a 4.58 in cleats and full pads. Like, he just doesn't slow down. So if everybody else slows down a little bit, he doesn't. So he looks a lot faster than you think when you see that combo. The, the, the biggest thing, and look, he's got, like, instincts and feel for when to hit the hole and uh, which hole to hit and, and all that stuff. But just, God, the, the first guy just never, never brings him down. And and that's backed up, too. I mean, you know, pro football focus comes out with, you know, forced missed tackles, and I think Hunt's still leading the league in that, in that category. But there are times where it's, like, the seventh guy gets him. Uh, it's, just, it's really incredible. Like, to me, the worry about him is don't give him too much work, you know, because uh, they're going to need this guy in January. And, you know, he played most of his college career through a lot of injuries. Uh, so, to me, they need to worry about getting him as, as healthy as possible uh, when the playoffs come. These next four weeks, to me, are kind of the real litmus test uh, for this Kansas City squad. You get, obviously, Pittsburgh at home uh, this week coming off a tough loss, and then on the road to Oakland, who knows if Carr is going to be available. Home against the Broncos, uh, a very good Broncos team, and then on the road against Dallas, which seems to be up and down so far throughout the course of the season. But uh, what will it take over these next four weeks, these next four games before the bye week for maybe the most skeptical of Kansas City fans to throw their full support behind these Chiefs? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, there's some fans that are just going to be skeptical no matter what, you know, um, skeptical until, you know, or unless Alex Smith is holding the trophy with whoever's doing the game after the Super Bowl. Um, and even then, they'd probably think that the parade floats were going to crash or something. But um, I don't know. Like, if they get through, first of all, let me say I don't think there's any way. But uh, if they got through, you know, kind of that gauntlet, um, you know, they, they would start to turn even more heads than, than they've done already. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. I've always, it, it doesn't look as daunting now as it did before, but I always looked at, uh, this Sunday against Pittsburgh and then four days later, uh, you got a road game at the Raiders. I always looked at that as just an absolutely brutal turnaround. Uh, you mentioned Carr and, you know, the Raiders have some other issues too, defensively, offensively too. Um, you know, the, what the Steelers did last week against the Jaguars, although I, I believe they're going to bounce back. Uh, but Roethlisberger's not going to throw five picks two weeks in a row, you know what I mean? Um, you know, so th- those two games don't look as daunting. But, yeah, you mentioned the, um, you know, the Broncos look maybe a little bit better. Well, certainly a lot better than I thought they'd be uh, this year. I thought their quarterback would hold them back a lot more than than, than has been the case. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, this is what happens though when you win the division, right? Like you have you have a tough schedule and, and you play other good teams. So, um, it's nothing that the Chiefs haven't seen. You know, like you mentioned, they they played good teams, and you know, maybe Houston won't end up being a playoff team now without Marcellus and JJ uh, uh, Watt. Uh, but that was still a road game, um, you know, against a team that won 57-14 the week before. So, uh, you know, it's nothing they haven't seen yet. This is not like a college team that, you know, plays three cream puffs in the non-con and now they have to play, like, actual competition. I mean, they, they've been playing good teams. Um, so, you, you know, to me the biggest thing is just these injuries have to stop. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they've been losing a starter a week. And, and and good guys too, and, and there's a certain core. There's like three, four, five, six guys that I think they just absolutely cannot lose, and they haven't lost any of those guys yet. Uh, but you know, still, Mitch Morris, Laurent Duvernay, Pardis, you mentioned Eric Berry, uh, Chris Conley. That's a big one that, that that I think people might ignore a little bit. D Ford was a big injury that I think people might ignore a little bit. So that that might be the biggest thing going forward. Is just you know they've got to get these injuries to stop. I'll be honest, I was really concerned after week one, even though they beat the Patriots pretty soundly with uh, Eric Berry going down for the year. But somehow they've made it work. Chiefs 5-0. and Steelers at home this weekend. Uh, a chance for maybe another big marquee victory on their schedule. He's Sam Mellinger of the Kansas City Star. We thank you so much for the time here, and best of luck the rest of the season. Cool. Thanks, man. Fun chat with Sam Mellinger there of the Kansas City Star. And and uh, listen, I mean, I'm, I'm all in now on the Chiefs. I really am. Uh, I, I think they've got a great offensive weapon uh, in Kareem Hunt, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey. Uh, Alex Smith is playing out of his mind this year. Um, they've given him more freedom to finally actually uh, maybe take some risks. And that's something that he hasn't been able to do for a while. So I, I definitely like the Chiefs. I think they're a quality team. Um, this next four weeks is going to be a huge test for them, obviously, as we mentioned with the Steelers, Raiders, Broncos, and uh, Cowboys all there um, as well. A couple other notes in the NFL that I want to mention um, here. A couple of things. Number one is uh, Adrian Peterson's trade to the Cardinals from the Saints. I don't know what this does for him. The Cardinals have a terrible offensive line. I don't think it really helps him much from his career. Yes, it makes him the the featured back in that offense, especially with Chris Johnson uh, not doing well and David Johnson on IR. But um, I, I don't. There's no point to that in my opinion. I, I don't think Adrian Peterson's going to do enough to keep the Cardinals alive in the NFC West. Uh, they have uh, a really rough schedule and they're not playing great right now. And I mean, you look at, honestly, the Rams have been a surprise team. So we'll see what happens there. But I don't like the trade for anybody except for Adrian Peterson, just because he's going to feel better because he gets to, he gets to actually carry the ball more. And then, um, you know, we'll touch on this later. I'm going to, I'm going to mention this at the end of the show, but this whole anthem demonstrations and everything uh, has gotten completely out of hand to the point now where you've actually had uh, reporters mention this now, and you can find it where players are starting to talk about anthem fatigue and how the message has been completely lost and the focus should go back to being on football. That may be the only reason why you're going to see people stop demonstrating or protesting or whatever you call it, simply because the message has been lost. And I've talked about that multiple times on this show, is the fact that we need to stop talking about how they demonstrate and why. Jerry Jones and what he has done has been completely disingenuous, and it's no surprise that Cowboys players... Uh, held a team meeting and are upset about what Jerry Jones said. But then at the same time, it's not necessarily surprising to see 
Roger Goodell um, and uh, the owners of the NFL start to try to make changes to enforce the rules. So you just want to see, obviously, them all join together and have some discussion. But we'll talk about it at the end uh, of the um, at the end of of the show here today. But I mean, it's not surprising at all to see how big of a cluster this has become uh, in in the NFL, where we're now having to have meetings with the owners and with Roger Goodell. So I'm not really surprised at all about that. We'll touch on that at the end of the show. One of the things I want to touch on uh, before we get too far away is, of course, Major League Baseball's playoffs. Um, It's been an exciting uh, time now. And and boy, uh, last night was a lot of fun for for baseball fans. Um, Obviously, the Nationals with a 5-0 blanking of the Cubs to force Game 5 in Chicago. With the rain day now, they go back to to D.C. Uh, They lose the travel day and got to play tonight here. Um, so we'll see exactly. It's supposed to be Kyle Hendricks for the Cubs, and who knows? Maybe it's Tanner Rourke. Uh, maybe it's Max Scherzer. I, I honestly think that um, the Nationals are, are in a better spot here because the Cubs burned John Lester last night, and, and and this is what you went out and drafted Steven Strasburg for. This is what you did all of the, the limitations for, and I know he caught a lot of heat uh, yesterday morning because he didn't feel well or whatever it was, but he came out and he pitched a tremendous game for the Nationals and whoever wins that series is going to have a tough time with the Dodgers because this is an LA team that despite struggling in the second half has really dominated Arizona a team that that dominated them in the last half of the season so um, the the National League Championship Series whether it's the Dodgers against the Cubs or the Nationals is going to be a lot of fun all I know is personally I think the Nationals are set up much better just because they didn't throw out their their secret weapon so to speak the Cubs threw out their secret weapon last night, bringing in John Lester in relief, losing him for Game 5, obviously. Now you don't have Lester, you don't have Arietta. Um, you got to hope Kyle Kendricks, or Kyle Hendricks, excuse me, goes a long way. You got to hope that um, Anthony Rizzo and, and the guys get their stuff together. You got to hope that bullpen figures it out. Wade Davis obviously giving up the grand slam. And, and look, at, I know it says 5 nothing, but that was a one nothing game until the 8th inning, in which... On a night where the wind was blowing in and nobody was getting much uh, distance, a grand slam snuck out by Michael Taylor. So don't think of five nothing as as a drubbing. That was a that was as close a five nothing game as you are going to see between the Nationals and the Cubs. So, but again, I think the way that the pitching matches up, whether it's Tanner Rourke, whether it's uh, Max Scherzer on short rest, whoever it is at home in D.C., that place is going to be rocking. You really need to get Trey Turner going. It was big for the for the rookie to get his first postseason hit in that game last night, and uh, I think the Nationals are set up better. I don't want to call a Nationals win uh, where they're going to go on and take on uh, the Dodgers, but that's that's kind of how it feels to me. Uh, I'm not going to call that, but that's just how it feels. And then on the American League side of things, uh, I mean, how, how about how about the Yankees, a team that was a year ahead of schedule, supposed to be in a rebuilding year, challenged for the division title, went all the way down to the last weekend of the regular season, and uh, win a wild card game at home despite Luis Severino not pitching through the first inning, not getting through the first inning, and then being down uh, 2-0 in a best-of-five series to the defending American League champs in the Cleveland Indians. I, I know a lot of people were, were saying that Joe Girardi was managing for his job, um, I don't know if he managed his way to being back in New York next year, but his players certainly played for him uh, on Wednesday night. And you really saw that with guys like uh, Aditi Gregorius, who uh, now is the only player ever to have three home runs in elimination games in a single postseason. He had a home run in the wild card game, and he had two last night off uh, a Cy Young caliber pitcher in, in Corey Kluber, a guy who's probably going to win the Cy Young this year. Um, and, and then you look at what, CC Sabathia, who how poetic is it for CC Sabathia, the guy who has the most wins ever in Cleveland's ballpark? Again, pitched eight years for the Indians, uh, has that type of performance. That was huge for him. Masahiro Tanaka, Luis Severino, pitched like the guys that the Yankees and Yankee fans were hoping for. But I, I think this is kind of an undervalued moment for the Yankees' season. Is if you go back and you look at what Brian Cashman did in bringing back David Robertson in that trade to get Tommy Canley as well from the White Sox. That, to me, was a changing point for the Yankees because it solidified their bullpen as the best bar none in Major League Baseball. And you saw that throughout the course of the second half of the season, throughout that push towards the pennant, and throughout this divisional series where he was able 
David Robinson was a huge part of it. Uh, Aroldis Chapman obviously is great. Uh, we know what he did with the Cubs last year. I don't know how well his arm is going to fare considering how late this this season may go for him. Back-to-back years, throwing that hard, that many innings, it, it could be difficult for Chapman, but give a lot of credit to the Yankees. Brett Gardner's eighth inning at bat, 12 pitches, and he finally able to, to rip a single there and bring in a couple of runs to really put that game out of reach. Obviously, uh, the way it ended, Indians fans are going to be upset about it, but I mean, you could have done a lot better, especially at home. Uh, I, I don't know what to think there, but it's going to be Yankees against Astros in the ALCS. That's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Excited to see Dallas Keuchel versus whoever it may be. Sonny Gray on Friday um, is what it probably feels like there for the Yankees going. But Jose Altuve against Aaron Judge, the two probably top MVP candidates in the American League, will be a lot of fun watching those staffs go against each other. Justin Verlander getting a chance again. Uh, Dallas Keuchel, Lance McCullers. Um, and then the bullpens, Ken Giles, David Robertson, and a number of others going at it uh, in the American League Championships here. So it should be a lot of fun. We'll wait and see exactly what happens there. And one other note in Major League Baseball before we turn things over uh, to the soccer style of things. Again, we want to touch on that. We'll bring on Baxter Colburn in here in just a moment. But um, many folks have heard John Farrell fired or relieved of his duties as the Boston Red Sox manager after five years with the club. Um, and Dave Dombrowski, the general manager, the president of baseball operations said yesterday, it wasn't a snap decision. It wasn't because this was back-to-back years exiting, uh, the playoffs in the first round, despite winning the division in back-to-back years. I I don't know what to make of it. My question, whenever a manager or a coach is fired or a GM is who better is out there, who's out there that the Sox could go get as a manager that would be better than John Farrell, because in his five years, he won a World Series. He won three uh, division titles. Yes, the other two years were last place finishes. But 60% of the time, you're beating the Yankees. That's all that really matters in Boston. Yes, the culture has changed now where they're expecting world championships because they've won three in the last 12 years. Um, but I don't know why they made that decision. I can understand it. There was a lack of leadership in the clubhouse. But I put a lot of that on the players, on guys like Dustin Pedroia, David Price, Chris Sale, um, even I put a lot of blame on, on David Ortiz, who maybe didn't groom an actual leader uh, during his final season. You know, Hanley Ramirez should have been one of those guys. Mookie Betts, I know he's only 25 years old, just turned 25, but he's a leader on that team. There wasn't really one, and the leadership I don't think always has to come from the manager's side. So we'll see what happens in Boston. I know a lot of names have been tossed out. Gary DeSarcina, who is the bench coach, makes sense. Jason Veritek, who's been a part of the organization since he retired, um, is a name that's been tossed around, though he has zero coaching or managerial experience, at least at the major league level. Two guys that I really like, names that I've heard, Brad Ausmus, the former Tigers manager. Um, he was also in Houston. I, I, I thought that the Red Sox should have hired him in 2013. They didn't. And then Alex Cora, who is now an assistant coach with the Houston Astros, former infielder for the Red Sox. He probably makes the most sense because I think he is incredibly smart. He understands that city, and that could be a lot of fun. So even though it's October, as I mentioned last week, October I think is one of the best months to be a sports fan. You get great playoff baseball. Some coaches lose their jobs, but it allows these things to kind of continue on and be pretty exciting. So we'll see what happens. Game 5 tonight in the NLDS, Nationals-Cubs in D.C. Uh, I'm I'm picking the Nationals, although I don't want to call that uh, 100% just because I think, again, their pitching kind of matches up better. And then the Yankees, of course, advancing, coming back from down 0-2. They are 4-0 in elimination games here this postseason. They will take on the Houston Astros starting on Friday down in Texas. You're on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. So happy to be with you, a part of the Public House Media Network. You can find us on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, as well as Stitcher.com and Spreaker.com. Don't forget to find us on Facebook, Press Row Podcast, Public House Media, as well as on Twitter and Instagram, at Press Row PHM. You can also email the show, PressRowPHM at gmail.com. Want to talk, uh, we weren't expecting to talk about it, but it happened. Tuesday night, a, a disappointing loss to uh, for the U.S. men's national soccer team. 2-1 to Trinidad and Tobago. An own goal in the 17th minute kind of spelled doom for the U.S. as uh, all they needed was a point. They could have even lost and gotten some uh, help there if Mexico had beaten Honduras. However, That did not happen as well, and for the first time since 1986, the U.S. men's soccer team will not be playing in the World Cup. 
Baxter Colburn, the former host of the soccer podcast Two Up Front, as well as a soccer play-by-play man, uh, joins us now here on the phone. And Baxter, just how embarrassing was Tuesday night's result for the U.S. men's soccer team? I think anytime you lose to a country that has less people than one of your nation's states, um, no matter how big or small it is, I think that's a massive embarrassment. I mean, Trinidad and Tobago is basically the equivalent of what we have here in the United States of maybe a, a mildly decent D1 soccer program or like a really, really good Division II soccer program. So you got to put that into perspective of the fact that this United States team is now not going to the World Cup because they lost to this team. Uh, is incredibly embarrassing, and there's people on social media, which is always my favorite part about it. It's, I, it's, I almost grabbed popcorn and some wine last night after the game, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to just scroll through social media and just kind of see what the masses are saying. And it, it is. It's unfortunate that the U.S. will not be in a World Cup, but the overreaction, I think, from a lot of people is also uh, very telling of how misinformed and how just downright people are uh, frustrated with the state of U.S. soccer. Well, let me let me ask you this then, Baxter, because uh, I don't think anybody really expected the U.S. to compete for the World Cup. But of course, being in the World Cup is a huge sense of pride. And every four years, you see just how many soccer fans, quote unquote, come out of the woodworks and fill bars to the max. Uh, all the kits that are being worn and purchased, all the scarves that are out there. Um, but the overreaction or the anger that we see on social media today uh, is this misinformation, misunderstanding of the game and how the qualifying works? Or have we really seen a true growth of fandom in the United States for soccer and they're generally upset about the result? I think it's a mixture of both. Uh, I think that since Landon Donovan scored that goal against Algeria two World Cups ago, I think the, the, the sleeping giant that is soccer in America has woken up. And then I always attribute to this, and I know a lot of people agree with me, the reason soccer is so popular in the United States over the last decade is not because of the men, it's because of the success the women have had. And I will continue to preach that for a very long time with the women's program, through and through, obviously from a results-based business, a World Cup title and several gold medals to your name usually means you're doing something right, is by far the more stable and much more dominant program. I don't even want to get into the debate, though, that the women's game is not as competitive as the men's game, yada, yada. don't want to get into that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the men's program – it has the right keys to be competitive, but you're right. We are still a long ways away from competing with the Argentinas and back when Spain was really good and the Colombias for a, for a championship. We are The United States is not in a position right now to say going into any World Cup that, okay, we know we're going to, you know, it's the final four or bust for us, basically. That's not realistic. We have to get past the quarterfinals. We have to not wait until the last game consistently of our group game to think if we're going to actually get through or not to the next round. That's not a stable program. That's not consistency. That's going to be, you know, a, a building block for a lot of people. Showing up to the World Cup to play three games for a team that's been there consistently for the last over 25 years and now not being there, that's kind of disappointing, honestly, to now say, like, well, we're just not that good anymore. He's Baxter Colburn, former host of the soccer podcast, Two Up Front, as well as soccer play-by-play man. Uh, let me ask you this here. Is this, uh, a lot of people are going to go after Bruce Arena. Some are going after Jurgen Klinsmann. Many going after uh, U.S. soccer president, Sunil Galati. Uh, is this a coaching problem, a, a player's problem? Is, is it systemic up and down the board uh, for U.S. men's soccer? It's Yeah, it's, it's see all the above because... Um, Jurgen Klinsmann, in my opinion, and I know some don't share this opinion, did nothing but good for bringing U.S. soccer out of the pits that they were in for a while. I think when you bring in someone that is not American and have them bring in their ideals and try to raise us up, because who do we as U.S. soccer compare ourselves to? We say, oh, we really want to be like Germany. Oh, we really want to be like England or you know, Argentina. Well, in order to do that, unfortunately, most American coaches aren't going to get that for you because they don't know what it's like to play in those countries. And you bring in a guy like Jurgen Klinsmann, who knows what it's like to play in a World Cup, to coach a championship team or a darn near close one with the, with the German national team, to bring him into a country that needed that spark. I think he did more good than he did bad. I know a lot of uh, my colleagues will argue me to the death saying that that's a terrible statement, but that's my personal opinion on that. Uh, in, in terms of Bruce Arena, we knew he was a Band-Aid. We didn't bring Bruce Arena in to fix the problem. We said, Bruce, just get us to the World Cup. 
which we thought was a shoe in because we, you know, have Bruce Arena on such a high pedestal. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens after that. And that was not the case. And then now you have people yelling for promotion relegation and you have people yelling for, well, it's, you know, it's this pay to play system. There's, I think U.S. soccer has almost made it far more complicated than it needs to be in terms of, you know, developing these younger players because this whole BS about talent pool is not good enough. The United States is loitered with good talent. We just have, I think, almost too much talent. We just don't have the resources to properly evaluate all of that talent. I think every kid uh, in the United States at one point or another has played soccer. Right. Uh, I think it's the first sport that you actually can physically play here in the U.S. Uh, Taylor Twellman, the former uh, men's national team forward, went off on ESPN following the the loss to Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, what were your thoughts? Uh, basically, he called everybody out saying everybody needs to look in, in the mirror, including broadcasters of the sport. What were your thoughts on his rant, uh, what he had to say, and then your overall impression of it? And I, I think we're, aside from Taylor Twellman being my motivation and my idol to even play the game of soccer, so I need to I need to preface my comments with that uh, because those that know me personally will say, well, he's going to agree with Taylor just because he's the biggest Taylor Twellman fan that exists. Well, yes, that's true, but at the same time, um, he has never been afraid to say things that need to be said. And I think oftentimes, and I'm sure you can attest to this and other guests on the show can attest to this too, People are afraid to say what needs to be said. And the fact that Taylor held no punches back and called people out, is he going to come under fire? Is he going to maybe, you know, be suspended or whatever? Maybe, but that's just because people don't like hearing what they know they need to hear. And that's, just, that's true in sports. It's true in real life as a whole. Um, so I completely support everything he said. The state of U.S. soccer is in a hot, hot mess right now. And thanks, and honestly, I'm going to be thankful to get rid of guys like Tim Howard and hopefully Josie Altidore and Michael Bradley and many others that are past their prime that are not doing anything productive for this team as a whole. And I, I do believe this, that guys like Christian Pulisic, the more we continue to find people like him, we need to get them on the first ship to Germany or England or Italy to have them play at a high level so that way we can actually have players that know what it's like to play against elite players, not whether you have an MLS or what you have in Mexico or what you have in South America. Well, you mentioned the wonder boy, Christian Pulisic. Uh, is, is he kind of, uh, and he's obviously the best player on this team, is he kind of the example of how the developmental program needs to change? Obviously, he left and played in Europe uh, still as a teenager uh, before coming back and joining the men's national team. Is he a prime example where maybe at 13 or 14 here in the U.S. you sign with an MLS developmental club and you work your way up through there before joining the national team? Is is he kind of the poster child for a dramatic or impulsive change in U.S. developmental soccer? I don't think so, unfortunately, because the state of even academies in MLS is not comparable at all to what you can do from a developmental club perspective in an England and a Germany. And I get it. They've, they've played the sport a whole heck of a lot longer. I mean, to, to put it in more Americanized terms, if England decided, Hey, we want to have our own version of the NFL, I guarantee you their teams would be horrible compared to what we have here in the United States, because we've been there longer. We know what it's like to make a successful NFL franchise. So it's it's a lack of experience still, unfortunately, and I know some people are going to get frustrated with that, saying, well, we've been doing this for a long enough time that we should be able to figure it out. Mm, not really. Not really. There still is a lot to go uh, for the United States as a whole. And some MLS clubs have it down. Teams like FC Dallas, they've got an incredible system for youth development, and they keep sending their players once they get them in the system for a couple of years. Then they send them to a Europe uh, you know, club, so that way they can continue to develop at a higher level because there's only – you can only go so far in MLS, and if you want to play at the next level still, until the narrative shifts and we see more talent come to MLS, MLS is kind of like a really good Division One soccer program. Obviously, it's much better than that, but you get what I'm saying. Though. Like, you need to go to that next, even higher level to play for the elite clubs to get elite coaching and training because we still don't have enough of that to be successful across the board here in U.S. soccer. He's Baxter Colburn, former host of the soccer podcast Two Up Front, as well as play-by-play man for soccer. Uh, I, I want to leave you with this here because this game was, a, a, as Michael Bradley called it, a perfect storm. Um, 
a team that had nothing to play for in Trinidad and Tobago, an own goal in the 17th minute by the United States, and now they're out of the World Cup for the first time since 1986. What are the immediate ramifications uh, that we can expect, uh, changes, whatever it may be, for U.S. soccer? I think, honestly, what people want to see happen is you're going to see people want people I think isn't that how everybody justifies the results you know a, a, a sad day like oh my gosh we didn't make the playoffs or oh we you know we lost three you know whatever you know the third consecutive losing season or whatever it is you know everyone's always like fire 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 and for me I don't necessarily know if it is the coaching I, I sometimes I, this is a, a big example of players because and maybe I might be in the minority in this and Christian maybe I don't know where you stand on this too but when the coaching, you know the coach is doing his very best, and he can only control so much. It all comes down to the players that are put on the field and whether or not they can succeed. And obviously, the coach has to be held accountable at times because, yes, he's the one calling the players into the team. He's the one setting the lineup. But when a player is put on the field, you are expected to play at a certain level. And when you don't, that reflects, of course, the team as a whole. And then people are like, oh, the coach is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. So I think you're going to see players – Never on the, on the national team again, based that we're on this current roster. I think Bruce Arena is going to take a hard look at what he's doing moving forward. And like I said, we all thought he was a band-aid anyway. He wasn't a long-term fix. Uh, and there's still numerous uh, coaches available uh, that could possibly come in and still looking towards the future now that they don't have the pressure of making this World Cup and say, okay, well, we were looking at these guys before when Jurgen Klinsmann was like, oh, maybe we can bring somebody in now and really start to dig deep and really start to develop for, you know, the next World Cup in 2022. No World Cup in 2018 for the U.S. men's national team. They've missed the last couple of Olympics as well. Fortunately for U.S. soccer fans, there is always the women's team. And if you really want to see some soccer, Liverpool, Manchester United here coming up this weekend. <laughs> yep, exactly. MLS playoffs are around the corner as well, too. And uh, the NWSL championship down in Orlando, the Courage and the Portland uh, Thorns will play on Saturday as well. Baxter, we appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks a lot. Hey, anytime, Christian. Much appreciated. Thank you. Fun chat with Baxter Colburn there. Uh, again, a, a guy who knows a lot about soccer, very passionate, as you heard, uh, about men's soccer, about soccer in general here in the United States. And, and I don't know where to go from here, but uh, you got to think it's it's not good for U.S. soccer from, from top to bottom. And again, uh, Taylor Twelman uh, really kind of went off on everybody um, from – you know, Bruce Arena on down and and even up, uh, even the president of, of U.S. soccer uh, may at some point need to go. Uh, there's a lot of changes that need to be made. This is a sport that the U.S. has always been mediocre at, uh, and they had an opportunity here against a team that they should have handled, especially coming off a 4-0 win over Panama on Friday, uh, and, and they just looked like they were bored, uh, tired. I, I, I don't know, but there, there are a lot of things to look at, maybe... Maybe the way Christian Pulisic has it is is the right way to go, where at, at 16 he goes and plays in Europe to develop and get a lot better. So who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll see exactly what is to come about uh, this, but it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate for the United States because, again, they haven't been in the last two Olympics. They're not going to be in the World Cup in 2018. So you've got a couple of years to try and figure things out here. Uh, in the future of of U.S. men's soccer. You're on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. We thank you so much for listening uh, and tuning in wherever and however you may be listening. There are a number of different ways you can do so. Obviously, you can find us on Google Play, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, Stitcher.com, Spreaker.com, as well as ThePHMedia.com. Want to end today's show just, uh, again, touching on what has continued to be the top story in sports, and that is the blend of sports and politics. Uh, and and really regarding the national anthem demonstrations, I'm going to refuse to call them protests, um, the, the demonstrations at NFL games. And you're hearing Roger Goodell now saying he wants to have a meeting uh, with owners next week in New York, uh, maybe changing the rule uh, in the NFL to force players to stand during the national anthem. He sent a letter on Tuesday um, saying he wanted players to stand during the anthem, hoping that they could move past this, uh, which is a little, I don't want to say ingenuous uh, to say um, or insulting. Um, he, he didn't say in his letter uh, how he intends to uh, ensure players to, to stand, but he wrote, quote, 
include such elements as an in-season platform to promote the work of our players on these core issues. So offering another avenue for them uh, while also making them stand, this is what it's come down to. It's now business here for, for the NFL and for its owners, and that's what Roger Goodell is seeing. Uh, with Jamel Hill, who has been suspended by ESPN for two weeks because she said if fans were upset, they should boycott the Dallas Cowboys, not go to their games, not support their advertisers. Um, and she gets suspended for that after Jerry Jones saying that anybody who takes a knee won't play for uh, the Cowboys, um, which is very disingenuous of a man who took a photo opportunity on national TV to kneel uh, prior to the national anthem with his team. Uh, it's It's turned into an absolute mess uh, uh, that the NFL is not going to be able to fix cleanly. This is um, a systemic issue where you think it can just go away and pressure from all outside uh, avenues, including the president even tweeting um, on on uh, early Tuesday morning, uh, I should say, excuse me, early Wednesday morning, Quote, it's about time that Roger Goodell of the NFL is finally demanding that all players stand for our great national anthem, respect our country in all caps. It's not about, and again, I've said this multiple times, It's we need to stop talking about how they're demonstrating and why they are demonstrating. So it, it, changing the rule is not going to work. And, and Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers defensive lineman Gerald McCoy actually said on a podcast, he thinks their quote would be an uproar uh, saying, uh, I don't think guys are going to like it if that is to happen because you're basically taking away a constitutional right to freedom of speech. If guys want to have, I guess you would call it a peaceful protest, I don't think it's right to take that away. Here's the thing, though, with, that everybody needs to remember. The NFL at its base is a business, and all businesses have rules or regulations based on how you demonstrate or your personal preferences at work. So it's not necessarily um, wrong for the NFL to have a rule in place uh, where during a game you cannot do anything, uh, you know, protest or demonstrate or whatever it is. A lot of rules have that. Uh, ESPN has a social media policy, uh, which is what Jamel Hill was suspended for, whether you agree with it or not. They are following their company policy, and, and as an employee of that company, you need to abide by that policy. I don't think it's fair to the players to force them to stand. Um, especially when, as we've mentioned and as has been talked about faintly, not a lot, as has been talked about, there is a uh, paid patriotism in national football uh, where the U.S. Army has used the NFL as an advertising platform, and that's why you see all these grand gestures of American pride prior to games. So I don't think it's fair to force the players to stand for something that the NFL is monetarily benefiting from uh, in general. I understand if you give them another avenue to to mention or to, to uh, support their personal causes, another platform, as Commissioner Goodell called it, um, I understand that that works, but it's not the best possible solution. And here's where I think is the best solution. And if you haven't had a chance, go find Kenny Stills, the Miami Dolphins wide receiver on Twitter, because I noticed this uh, late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning. He uh, basically orchestrated what Colin Kaepernick has been doing throughout his entire foundation. Um, where he brought together a group of citizens and police officers in northern Miami and just had a discussion with both sides on how the public needs to interact respectfully with law enforcement and how law enforcement needs to respectfully interact with the public. And the amazing part about this, Roger Goodell was there. You look at the pictures, it's not being shown on national media, but Roger Goodell was there. And that is a huge thing. If there can be a, just a discussion between the public, the players, the law enforcement officials, everybody else who is a part of this, whether directly or indirectly, open discussion is the key. That is the biggest thing. If you can actually start having a dialogue and start to improve some of the things for these folks, it's going to be a much different story. Forcing players to stand, making a new rule, because the rule now says that they should stand. It doesn't say they must. Changing that rule and benching players or fining players, suspending them for voicing their own personal opinion is going to create an even more social uproar and public uproar outside. You may get the player, and it won't change. I don't think the players are going to automatically start standing just because it's in the rules and they're afraid to get fined. 
You think Randy Moss cared how many times he got fined for his celebrations? He still went and did it. Same with Terrell Owens. Same with Chad Johnson. You think they cared? No. They went out and still did it because they could afford it. You're not going to get a massive drastic change immediately by forcing players to do something. That's not how this works. You need to have an open dialogue, and that is the most important thing possible in all of this. So I don't think anything changes this weekend. I don't think anything changes next weekend after the owners meet with Roger Goodell. It's going to go on for a very long time, and this is just making it that much worse and that much more of a social issue where you're going to see fans start doing what Jamel Hill asked, boycotting the teams. Because as soon as you start forcing people to go, you're going to see numbers drop. You're going to see the attendance fall from across the board as soon as you start telling players that they don't have a voice. Because that's how it's going to be perceived. It's going to be perceived as you are silencing the players and you are silencing everything they stand for. And that is not going to cut it because whether it's this year or next year or 10 years down the road, eventually fans are going to look at this and say, you don't care about the players who are speaking up for me. You don't care for me. And that is how it's going to hurt the NFL. So I don't think this is the right move by forcing them to stand. What Roger Goodell did with Kenny Stills in Miami is 100% the right way to go. Open dialogue, open discussion. That is the only true way to fix all of this. It's going to be an interesting weekend to see what happens. It was a very strange week in sports as it almost always is, but we thank you guys so much for being a part of the show. I want to thank Sam Mellinger, the Kansas City Star, talking about the Chiefs. Again, they're trying to go 6-0 with the Steelers at home this week. We'll see what happens. And then Baxter Colburn uh, discussing the embarrassment, the letdown of the United States men's national soccer team. It'll be a fun weekend to have for sure. We're excited about it. We certainly hope you guys enjoy it as well. Don't forget you can get in contact with the show. Visit us on Twitter and Instagram at PressRowPHM. Find us on Facebook, Press Row Podcast Dash Public House Media. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher.com, Spreaker.com, and of course you can visit us on Public House Media's website, thephmedia.com. Until next time, I'm Christian Heimel, and I will see you on Press Row.